Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we revisit Dr. Newfeld's two-week series entitled Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now as we listen to his introductory message on the person of the Holy Spirit. Gordon Brownville, in his book, Symbols of the Holy Spirit, tells about the great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen. He was the first to discover the magnetic meridian of the North Pole, and he was also the first to discover the South Pole. On one of his trips, Amundsen took a homing pigeon with him. When he had finally reached the top of the world, he opened the bird's cage and set it free. Imagine the delight of Amundsen's wife back in Norway, says Brownville, when she looked up from the doorway of her home and saw the pigeon circling in the sky above. No doubt she exclaimed, he's alive, my husband is still alive. Writes Brownsville, so it is when Jesus ascended. He was gone, but the disciples clung to his promise to send the Holy Spirit. What joy then when the dove-like Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. The disciples had with them the continual reminder that Jesus was alive and victorious at the Father's right hand. This continues to be the Spirit's message today. Well, that's a wonderful image and a wonderful truth. And over the next two weeks, I want to do a topical Bible study about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Who is he and what does he do? The reason for this study is that in two weeks, we will come to one of the great celebrations of the church. It's called Pentecost. And this study is intended to prepare us for that important time of the year, in the same way as we might expect a series of messages preparing us for Christmas or for Easter. But to the most part, the ancient early Christian celebration of Pentecost has been forgotten in our time, and that's not surprising, because I fear that the Holy Spirit has been a forgotten person of the Trinity among many Christians. I'm still amazed at how often I hear Christians referring to the Holy Spirit as it rather than he. Furthermore, I'm amazed at how little so many of us know about the Holy Spirit. We might know about the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, but we are unaware of how these things are a part of the wider activities of the Holy Spirit. So over the next two weeks, we will re-familiarize ourselves with the often neglected Holy Spirit. But why should we do so? What benefit do we gain from a two-week study of the Holy Spirit? Let me suggest four reasons for making it a priority to listen over the next two weeks. First of all, I want to give you enough information that will inspire you to worship the Holy Spirit. If that sounds strange to your ears, please keep listening. But at this point, understand that the Holy Spirit is your God, and as such, He is worthy of your worship. Second, I want you to understand how dependent you are on the Holy Spirit. You need Him more than you know. And third, I want to reflect upon what the Holy Spirit has done. And finally, I want you to see what the Holy Spirit offers all believers. So where do we begin? I want to begin by identifying the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And to that, I will simply respond, He is the third person of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as I introduce the Holy Spirit, let me speak about the Trinity. Even as there is a great confusion about the Holy Spirit, I find that there is a great deal of confusion also about the Trinity. So at the outset, the Bible makes it clear that there is but one God. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, The Lord is God, there is no other beside Him. Isaiah 43.10 and 11. 
You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be one after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Now we could go on citing more verses, but the point is plain. There is but one God, not two, not three, one God, only one. It's always wrong to say, well, there are kind of three gods and one God at the same time. Isaiah 45, 21 says, there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. So that's the first truth, one God alone. And yet, curiously, this one God sometimes speaks of himself in the plural. Genesis 1:26, God says, let us make man in our image. I know some people have said that this is no more than what they call the plural of majesty, kind of like the Queen of England when she says, we are not amused. Is that what God means when he speaks of himself as plural? But that's entirely unlikely. First, there are no examples in the Hebrew Bible of any king ever speaking like that. That practice simply was unheard of in the ancient world. And for those who suggest that God might have been speaking to the angels when he said, let us make man in our image, that too is impossible. Human beings are never said to have been created in the image of the angels. Indeed, we were created in the image of God and in his image alone. So then when God says, let us create man in our image, who is God talking to? Well, the answer is he's talking to himself. And it's not as if this is the only time that we see this kind of language. In Genesis 3, verse 22, after the fall of man, God says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And in Genesis 11, verse 7, God commits to destroying the Tower of Babel, and he says, let us go down and confuse their language. And as the First Testament progresses, it continually confirms the truth that there is but one God. And yet in Psalm 110, verse 1, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord and my Lord. So what's going on there? Who is God speaking to? One of the great puzzles in the Old Testament is how the one God could be spoken of in the plural. Indeed, the Hebrew word for God, the word Elohim, is in itself a plural noun. Also, the Hebrew Shema, and by the way, Shema is a Hebrew word that simply means to hear. And the Hebrew Shema refers to a passage of Scripture found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, a passage that all Israelites were taught to repeat, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All that makes sense, one God, until you read that the word for God is plural. The Lord our gods is one God's. How can God be both one and spoken of in the plural? Well, the Old Testament or the First Testament doesn't answer that riddle, but hints at its solution. But in the Second or the New Testament, that which is hinted at is now revealed in blazing light. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To show that he is with God shows that there is a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. But to say that the Word is God is to show that the Son is truly the one God along with his Father. Sound confusing? Well, stay with me. There are numerous verses in the New Testament showing clearly that Jesus is fully God and equal with the Father, who is fully God. Let's list some of them. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. Titus 2.13 refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1 speaks of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Romans 9.5, speaking of the Jewish people, Paul writes, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. And then Paul adds of Jesus, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Philippians 2.6, we're told that Jesus has always been in the form of God. And Jesus himself said in John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. He's quoting from Exodus 3.14, where God says, I am who I am. He's claiming equality with God. Before Abraham existed, I have eternally existed. I am the great I am. See, some have suggested that these passages must mean that Jesus is both the Father and the Son. There is only one God, they say, and that he sometimes appears in the mode or the form of the Father, sometimes in the form or the mode of the Son. But the Bible denies that. All through the life of Jesus, we see Jesus praying to the Father. He says of himself in John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So much can be said of this. If Jesus submits to the Father, which is what he says over and over again, then how can he be fully equal with the Father at the same time? Well, without getting into all the details, let me suggest a little illustration. Let's say someone asked you, are you equal to the prime minister? And the answer is, I am. He's a human and subject to the laws of this land, and so am I. And so in being and in essence, he and I are fully equal. But within the economy of Canadian law, he plays a different role or a different function than I do. I know that illustration is anything but perfect, but it does get at it. In being and in substance, in an essence, the Father and the Son are equal. There is but one God. The Father and the Son are both the one God. The Father is the uncreated creator, and so is the Son. Theologians put it this way, an equality of essence, but a difference in role or function. But what of the Holy Spirit? When we come back, we will see that all that is true of the being of the Father and of the Son is also true of the Holy Spirit. Let me share with you a few comments from our listeners. This is one of the most insightful and fulfilling studies I have ever heard in my life. Another, I'm a pastor, and I've been listening to Back to the Bible podcasts since the fall. I'm very thankful to be able to listen to the daily podcast and have my own life and ministry enriched with excellent teaching that Dr. Neufeld provides. And thank you at Back to the Bible for all the amazing work you do. You've helped my walk more than you'll ever know. What a great encouragement. And it reminds us to say thank you. Your prayers and financial support, your commitment, makes all our Bible teaching ministries possible and available to anyone thirsting to hear. Please continue to partner with us. Together, lives are being encouraged and changed. Offer your generous support today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've made the case that both the Father and the Son are fully the one and only God. But what of the Holy Spirit? 
You'll remember that Jesus' last words to his disciples on earth was, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That verse alone would lead us to believe that the Holy Spirit is spoken of or that his name is mentioned on an equal plane with the Father and the Son. But some people are not quite convinced. From their vantage point, the Holy Spirit is only the power of God, not an actual person. But once we read the Bible record, we should settle that matter once and for all. Some of you will remember the horrible tragedy that surrounded the deaths of Ananias and his wife Sapphira recorded in Acts 5. Without going into the details of the story, you may remember that Peter confronts them in verses 3 and 4 and says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he adds these words, You have not lied to men, but to God. So according to Peter, when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. Now, you know you can't lie to a power, but you can lie to God. Or consider the evidence of John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his soon departure, and he assures his disciples that everything is going to be all right. And he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, there is so much to learn from that verse, but for our purposes, I want you to notice only one thing. The Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma, which is a neuter noun. And yet when Jesus speaks of the spirit, the pronoun him is masculine and not neuter. Now, that's incorrect grammar, but it's correct theology. Jesus speaks of the Spirit as a person and not a power. But is this person equal with God? And the answer is, yes, he is. For over and over again in the New Testament, the name of the Holy Spirit is placed immediately beside both the Father and the Son. So, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter writes to God's elect, that is, believers who have been chosen by God, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. There you have it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all mentioned in the vital role of bringing us salvation. Or consider 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, all three members of the Godhead are mentioned in one sentence in equal terms. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the issue of our fellowship with him is clearly emphasized. You can have fellowship with a person, but not a power. So both the equality with the other two and the personhood of the Holy Spirit are the key. But there are also places in the New Testament where attributes are assigned to the Holy Spirit that are only true of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11 reads, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So all that God the Father knows is also known by God the Holy Spirit. Just so I don't lose anyone in all this, let me try to put all this together. We said, first of all, that there is but one God, not two or three, but one God. This one God has always eternally existed as three distinct persons, and all these three persons are called the one God. 
I also hinted at something else. While the three persons are equal in their essential being, in their essence, the three persons perform a very different role or function in the economy of the Trinity. Consider the work of creation. The Father spoke the creative words to bring the universe into being. The Son, who is the eternal Word, carried out the decrees of the Father, and as John chapter 1, verse 3 says, all things were made through Him. And the Holy Spirit was active, as Genesis tells us, in hovering over the work of creation, and as Psalm 33, verse 6 seems to indicate, the Spirit was revealing God's immediate presence in the creation itself. Or consider the work of our salvation. According to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, the Father planned our salvation from eternity past. The Son, we are told in John 6, 38, obeyed the Father by accomplishing our salvation for us. And according to John 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit applied that salvation to our own individual lives by regenerating or changing our hearts and bringing life to our deadened hearts. In other words, the three persons are fully equal, but they play a unique role. But could we make this even more plain? I think we can. Author C.S. Lewis says the following that might be helpful. I'm quoting from his book entitled Mere Christianity, and here's what he says. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it's not a real person. It's only rather like a person. That's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. And I love that quote because it explains at least two features about the activity of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it explains John 15 verse 26. There Jesus says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or comes out of the presence of the Father or is sent by the Father. It also explains why the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. He exemplifies the life of God. He showcases the glory both of the Father and the Son. He shines a spotlight on the Father and the Son and announces, look at them. Are they not glorious? That is the role of the Holy Spirit. It's a kind of self-effacing role. He draws attention not to himself, but to both the Father and the Son. And as this series goes on, I'll have much more to say about that. But this also explains something else. It explains that the Holy Spirit highlights the relationship between the Father and the Son. That means he shows forth the love the Father and the Son have for each other. Now, are your eyes glazing over? Don't let them do that because there is such an important truth here that if you understand it, it will revolutionize your relationship with God forever. See, let me ask you a question. Why did God create you? If you answer because he was lonely and needed fellowship, well, you're wrong and have created a God who is like yourself. Acts 17 verse 25 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God needs nothing, not even your fellowship. 
That's because the sweet fellowship between the Father and the Son is so rich and fulfilling and joyful and enduring and needing nothing else that the joy of their rich fellowship is himself a real person. God did not create you because he needed you. He created you as an expression of his satisfaction and delight in being God. You were created not because of need. You were created because of God's fullness of joy in himself. That's why you don't exist to fulfill some unmet need in God. You exist to delight yourself in God who is altogether delightful. And here's another point of application. When you receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the rich, full, joyful, and satisfied life of God. That's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. It is to be full of the life of the Father and the Son. So for the next two weeks, we're going to re-examine the person, not the force, but the person of the Holy Spirit. And as you do, you'll find yourself swept up in joy and in adoration of the Father and the Son. John, this is a rich series, and I think one that people need to hear and to understand and to uh, try to absorb into their daily walk. But, you know, it's also a series that perhaps could cause some conflict between those who sort of define the Spirit of God in a different way than others, particularly in the area of the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, Ben, I want to make a distinction between uh, the controversies that we've had about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a lot of the controversies that remain in the church today, and the actual person of the Holy Spirit. There ought to be no controversy at all regarding the actual person of the Holy Spirit. What we're talking about is the third person of the three persons who are the one God. And to agree on the personhood of the Holy Spirit is the common confession of all Christians in the world today. So maybe we need to start out with that which we agree on, and that is we must agree that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Now, this is the disagreement. It's it's about the gifts, exactly as you've said. So one of the things that I see and I observe, particularly since we've been traveling a lot, is that uh, how the Holy Spirit seems to work in some countries is different than others. Is that possible? You know, that's such a good question. I do, I have noticed over the years that there are certain cultures in which the Holy Spirit is calling a great company of men and women into salvation, and there are other cultures which seem to be, well, I don't know how to explain it, but it just seems like there are far few converts that are coming in in certain cultures. And, And so we might see that the Holy Spirit is drawing a great company in certain groups of people at different times. I guess that's his priority and his prerogative, so I guess we'd have to say it that way. Well, we've got much to learn over the next couple of weeks. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We've just returned from a two-week ministry trip to India. The highlight was the Bible teaching conferences facilitated in partnership with Back to the Bible India under the direction of Dr. John Newfeld. Each conference was attended by pastors and lay leaders in Hyderabad, Pune, and surrounding communities, and each was filled to capacity. The thirst and enthusiasm to gain the skills for effectively preaching and teaching the Word of God was so evident as we interacted with the pastors. God was and is doing a great thing, and we're blessed to be a part of it. But this could not have been accomplished without the commitment and financial support of our international partners across Canada. What a blessing. 
Now we begin planning additional conferences in Delhi and again in Hyderabad. And your continued financial support for the conferences would mean so much. To support this international effort, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.